0: and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor-teacher, Harry Reeder. If
1: you can remain standing for the reading of God's Word, if you're able, please do so. And the rest, if you will, if you will turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. That's where we find ourselves today. Romans 3. By the way, concerning Dr. Barker and that chair, if you would like to know more about it, back on all the tables around the sanctuary are the pamphlets that explain the Dr. Barker chair at Westminster Seminary for Evangelism and Missions. Would you take in your Bibles and would you look with me to God's Word? It's the truth, inspired, inerrant, infallible. And hear what the Lord says to us as we arrive now in our 15th study on the gospel of God expounded by Paul in this letter to the Romans. Here's what we look at in chapter 3 and verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Well what if some were unfaithful does their does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God by no means let god be true though every man every one were a liar as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged but if you if your if our unrighteousness Serves to show the righteousness of God. What shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory. Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God abides forever. By his grace and mercy, may his word be preached for you. Please be seated. So the Apostle Paul continues to bring us before the reality of the judgment seat of God. The reality of our sins, the reality of our helplessness, the reality of our hopelessness, we have been in this now for 15, this is our 15th sermon, and 10 of those have addressed this issue of judgment because the length of time that Paul has given to it, all the way from Romans 1:18 through chapter 3 and verse 23, yes, chapter 3, verse 23, we're not at the end of this yet. He continues to relentlessly bring the reality of the judgment seat and the reality of the divine indictment against everyone who stands in the divine court of judgment, and everyone will stand there unless their names are written in the book of life because they have come to Christ as their Lord and Savior to save them from their sins. Now, as he continues to work his way through this, remember, he has already given us the taste of what he's going to start unfolding in chapter 4. Those positive statements of the saving power and grace of the Lord Jesus. That gospel, that good news of God. He's, he gave us a taste, a little profile of it. Romans 1, uh, verses 16 and 17. He says, I'm eager to preach the gospel. I am not ashamed to preach the gospel. And he says, why? Because of this. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You're not saved by works, but by faith in Christ, whose righteousness, his work, is what redeems you. And the power of God to raise dead sinners to life. That's the good news. But you see, the good news of God's grace revealed isn't going to be understood until the occasion for God's wrath to be revealed. As the next verse says, for the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. And so he begins to tell us why this is good news. I've thought about how can I maybe get us um, this... Section that I just read to put it in its context of what he is doing on this foundational doctrine of the gospel called the judgment that reveals the day of judgment reveals that there are none worthy of the new heavens and the new earth. We are all worthy of God's judgment. And who is it that in the day of the judgment will here enter in instead of depart from me? Enter into the new heavens and the new earth instead of depart to Gehenna, the lake of fire. Well, here's the way I thought I'd do it. Paul is dealing with this doctrine of the judgment. And let me put, can I frame it for you? These chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3 and verse 20. Let me try to give you a framing. Framing has four sides. So here's the first thing to see. The Apostle Paul is relentlessly bringing before us the reality that God's wrath is revealed now with measure as a warning of the day when God's wrath will be revealed without measure. God's temporary wrath that warns you of the eternal wrath of God to which there is no remedy yet to come. So he is relentlessly doing that. Why is he relentlessly bringing this judgment Before us? Well, I can give you one reason. Who in the Bible spoke on the judgment day more than anybody else? Now, you know what to answer. What's the safe answer for every Christian when they're asked a question from the pulpit? Jesus. There's your safe answer. It's Jesus that spoke on the judgment more than anyone else. And Paul realizes that the, judge, the doctrine of the judgment isn't simply what you've got to understand to appreciate the gospel. The, gospel of, the doctrine of the judgment is a foundational doctrine to the, to the gospel. Why? Because you won't ever be brought up to be saved by grace until you're brought down to see you're a helpless and hopeless sinner. Under the wrath of God. Now the grace of God that's greater than our sin is amazing. So he is relentlessly bringing to us the appointment that we all try to forget and deny as if it's not coming. It is appointed unto men once to die and then the judgment. The second, let me, now let me put the second piece of the frame in on what he's doing in chapter 1 and verses 18. The second thing is, is Paul, is making you realize there's one judgment. It has multiple purposes now. It has multiple purposes. It reveals who's in the book of life and who's not in the book of life. It's a judgment that will deal with the stewardship of believers. It's a judgment that will is doxological. It shows us how much we've been saved to the praise of God. It shows to the world that mocks Christians what God was doing. And it shows the reality of sin and helplessness and whether you're in Christ or not in Christ. It has multiple dynamics. There are multiple judgments. There's one judgment, one judge, and there are multiple dynamics that take place through it. But secondly, what you need to see is Paul is operating like a prosecuting attorney. He is, he is bringing everybody before the bar of divine judgment to hear the verdict. Guilty. 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 There is none who is innocent. No, not one. There is none who is righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He is relentlessly doing it because he knows unless you know that you will try to fix things yourself. Instead of giving up on yourself, dying to yourself and confessing your sins and coming to Christ. Who saves us for if we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us. But you won't confess until you know you're a sinner and you won't confess until you know you can't save yourself and you won't confess until you know that Christ, who hates sin, loves to save sinners to be his people. Then you come. That's why this prosecuting attorney, uh, attorney is working his, every case against every one of us. Number three. Number three. He is dismantling every false defense, defensive strategy you may come up with. He is dismantling every false strategy he, you may come up with. He's telling the pagan Gentile who thinks, Ah, I'm innocent, I don't have enough information. He says, no, 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 no. No, you live in the theater, the IMAX theater. You live in the round theater of God's glory, where every day the surround sound is being poured forth you the speech of god is being poured forth and you can know his divine nature and his eternal power no your problem is not the lack of information you got a hard problem you suppress the truth in unrighteousness and so he dismantles the notion that well I don't have enough information. No, there's plenty to give you accountability that he's the creator, you're the creature, and you were made to give him worship and honor and glory. And the second thing he's saying to them, and the second group he goes to is the moralistic gentile. So the pagan gentile with the religion of irreligion, then he goes to the moralistic gentile with the false man-made religion and in the And exposes his hypocrisy and says your very false man-made religion that can't save you will be the condemnation of you and then he turns to the jew and he knows what the jew is going to is going to mount as a defense hey i'm circumcised i'm a part of the nation the only nation that's ever had a covenant with god we've got the privileges of true religion We've got the ministries of true religion. We've got the sign, circumcision, the signs and seals, circumcision and the Passover. I'm okay. There's a group plan I'm depending on, bounded by true religion. That'll get me in. And he says, no, it only condemns you. Because you are looking to religion to do what it can't do, instead of looking to the one who gave you the true religion to lead you to him. It's not the privileges of true religion that save you. It is not the ministries of true religion that saves you. It is not the sign and seal of the God-given sign and seal of the covenant that saves you. It's the one who gives true religion that saves you. And he gave the true religion... To bring you not to true religion as your Savior, but to Him. It is not the artifacts of true religion that saves you. It is the architect. You must come to Him. Well, you fast forward from the Old Testament 2,000 years later to the New Testament, and guess what? God has shown us what true religion is, not only from the Old Testament that pointed to Christ, but now in the New Testament that expounds Christ. James talks about that true religion, and others talk about it. And in that true religion, there are many that in our day are doing what the Jew was doing in Paul's day, thinking, hey, I'm, in a, I'm a member of a Bible-believing church. I've been baptized. In fact, um... Harry Reader baptized me. Well, I don't know why that would be exciting for you, but uh, how about this? Dr. Barker baptized me. Um, hey, I, um, I give away Bibles to people. Hey, I went to the evangelism training class, and I share the gospel with people. Yeah, I'll give you one. I keep the nursery. I teach a Sunday school class. I sing in the choir. Now listen, all of those things can be wonderful evidences of your salvation and true religion providing the conduit. But if you think your privileges, we got Bibles. We got a Bible preacher. We got Bible teachers. We got small groups. If you think the privileges of true religion and your engagement in them saves you, then you are deceived unto condemnation. You're not, I, let me point to me. I'm not going to heaven because I, I preach sermons. I'm not going to heaven because I hand out gospel tracts when I meet with people. I'm not going to heaven because I have family devotions. I'm not going to heaven because I, uh, because I lead a small group. I am not going to heaven because I've shared the gospel with people and they've come to Christ. I can only go to heaven if I have confessed my sins and personally put my trust in Christ alone. And that's what true religion is designed to do. It's not the privileges and the ministries. You remember what he said last week in Romans 2? He said, the Jew who says, we've got true religion... We've got the will of God. We've got the glory of God right there in the temple, right there in Jerusalem. We've got the glory of God. We've got the will of God. We've got the truth of God. We've got the worship of God. Look at all these privileges. In fact, we got God. He's over there in the Holy of Holies. We've got a covenant relationship with him. And look at our ministries. We who are instructed now instruct the foolish. We who were guided with God's will now guide those in darkness. We who have been taught now teach our children. And he goes through all of the, privilege, all the ministries that the privileges call for. And we got the privileges and we do the ministries. And uh, listen, God's got one sign, circumcision. We're even called the circumcision. We've got circumcision. And then he says this. (laughs) He says those artifacts, those privileges, those ministries, they don't save you. Let me give you the fourth piece of that frame. He not only relentlessly brings the reality of the judgment, not only relentlessly brings the prosecution of our guilt before God, and not only dismantles our strategies, number four, He's doing all of this to point you, unlike any other prosecuting attorney. He wants to lose your case. So he's pointing you to the only advocate for you, the only defense attorney for you Jesus, who casts down the accusations and the accuser of the brethren. In Christ, There is no charge. Who will lay a charge against God's elect? It's God, Christ, who justifies. Who is it to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of the Father, who even now intercedes for us. And who can be against us if God be for us? And what can separate us from the love of God in Christ? No, in Christ we are more than conquerors. He's doing this, not that you go to hell, but that you flee the wrath to come. And not go to irreligion, false religion, or even true religion to save yourself. But go to Christ alone. That's why the angel said, Joseph, you will call his name Yahshua. Yahweh saves. You shall call his name Yeshua, for he will save his people. Who will save? Not the religion he gives. Who will save? He will save. He will save his people from their sins. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He didn't just send a religious protocol that was true. He sent the religious truth and paradigms to bring you to Christ, to nurture you in Christ, and to send you out to serve Christ. Well, Paul then decides I know what those people in fact I have had this. Do y'all remember last Sunday if you were here? Do you remember I finished with an illustration from a from one of George Whitfield's sermons where he said he had a dream and he went to heaven and Gabriel said he said to Gabriel, Are there any Presbyterians, are there any Baptists? There any? He said, No, no, no. Well who's in heaven? Uh, Gabriel. Well, Christians. That's who's in heaven. And then he says I went to went to the the gates of hell and I said to Lucifer um, are there any are there any presbyterians are there any baptists and, and Lucifer said oh yeah yeah they're here we got some here any christians oh no 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 they're all there in heaven folks last Sunday was not the first time I've ever used that illustration in fact I do remember the first time I used it it was in a little small Presbyterian church when I was just beginning my ministry. And then I used that illustration from George Whitfield. I said, This is safe. Calvinist Methodist. I can use this. I can use this. And as I gave the illustration and I got to I got to the gates of hell and I said and and he said I, and he said to Lucifer, Are there any Presbyterians in hell? And he said, Yes. The moment I said this, there's a fine, wonderful little Presbyterian church lady sitting on the third row in front of me who will not say a word, but somehow sings without moving her mouth. But as soon as I said that, she shouted out, that's not right. Of course, I had the opportunity to talk to her afterwards what I was, but you know, there is within many of us, in fact, I might have seen it in some of your faces last week and this week when I said, Being trained in evangelism and leading people to Christ won't save you. Are you wait? Wait. It's easy. It's so. It's so amazing how easy it is for us to think what we do in false religion or true religion will save us. If it could, His Son would not have gone to the cross. He'd just say, "Buck up, do better." It can't save you. But now Paul knows. Then the Jew, and I know the Christian, 2,000 years later, is going to say, Well, then what advantage is there to having a good church? What advantage is true religion? What possibly can be the va- advantage? He knows that. Can I give you all a little insight that really helped me? And I am deeply, I am deeply uh, appreciative of uh, Charles Hodge, uh, uh, John Murray, and his commentary. There, uh, Charles Hodge, John Murray, and Sinclair Ferguson's their insights on this. So I want to acknowledge that. Uh, but I'm just going to give it to you in my own words. Is that why does why does Paul know every strategy? Why does he know what people are falsely hoping in? Why does he know they need to be challenged? Why does he know this? Well, there's three reasons. Number one, he knows what people need to deal in, how to dismantle their their strategies, their defense strategies that are inadequate, incompetent, and actually add to their condemnation. He knows what they are because he knows the word of God. And in the word of God, people have had those strategies ever since the garden. Ignorance, false religion, are are trying to make true religion a savior instead of an instrument to lead you to the savior. He knows that. He knows the word of God. Secondly, he's got the spirit of God inspiring him. But let me give you a third reason. Paul is a good detective. Can I tell y'all the best detective series to watch? Now you got to be a little careful, uh, but overall it's okay. The best if you haven't seen it, it's really interesting. Uh it's four seasons of a man, of a detective, of 400 over four almost 500 cases. He was known as being just, he was unbelievable. And this guy, that's this detective, just doesn't lose. He gets his man. And all the cases I looked at over four seasons, I only know of one, that he didn't get his man. And he said, I haven't given up yet. And it was interesting why he was so good as a detective. And the giveaway was in the way they presented it. The the crime would occur, then he would be called, he would get to the crime scene, and in the crime scene, the way they depicted it, they gave you the way he approaches the case. He didn't look at the crime scene and go get a criminology book, a sociological book, an anthropologist, he didn't do that. He got in the crime scene, and he put himself as the doer of the crime. Where would I go? What would I do? What did I do? He put himself as the criminal. And then he knew how to track him down. That's Paul. The reason he's a good prosecuting attorney is he knows your strategies. He knows because he knows himself. Oh, folks, I wish I just had forever for this, but I got to do this real quick. You see, this happened to Paul. I love to connect the dots. I'm so grateful for those commentators that connected it for me. Who was the first martyr of the church? Anybody remember? Stephen. And do you know why they killed him? The answer to why they killed him and this marvelous sermon he preaches in Acts 7 is found back in Acts 6. He appeared before the Sanhedrin. He appeared before the Pharisees. He appeared before all of them. The Jewish ruling council. He appeared before them, and this is what the Bible says. Because the Spirit of God was with him and his wisdom, they could not answer his arguments. He dismantled every argument the Pharisees brought. And the Pharisees were trusting what for their salvation? Their religion. He dismantled them. Now question, who was a part of the Sanhedrin? Trained, ordinated, and a part of it. And was one of those who could not refute Stephen. Who was one of them? Paul. Don't you see? Stephen, what Stephen did to Paul, which, by the way, he was more than happy to get him killed. What Stephen did to Paul. Paul is now doing for you. And I, in my very incompetent way, am trying to do what Paul would do for you relentlessly. That you would be brought down so that gloriously you would be brought up in Christ alone. That's what he did. That's why That's why I had you read last week, and we referred to it this week. His, Paul gives his testimony five times in the Bible for different reasons he uses it. And in Philippians 3, this is what he said. He said, if anybody had any reason to put confidence in their abilities, in their flesh, in their obedience to true religion, I, more than any others. I am a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I am circumcised the eighth day. I am of the tribe of Benjamin. I am trained under Gamaliel. As to zeal, I am uncom- No one compares with my zeal. I even was a persecutor of the church when they told me to. As to, the, as to righteousness... I was under the full approval of men. As to the law in obedience, men looked at me as the epitome of true religion. Next verse. But these things that I once counted for my salvation, I now count as loss that I may know Christ. Paul said, I thought my true religion, privileges, ministries, and circumcision would save me. Now I count it as loss in terms of saving me. And I now want to know him in the power of his resurrection. That's why Paul knows the Jew and where their tendency is. He's not, this isn't any kind of anti-Semitism. This is a man who loves his countrymen and saying you're trusting in the wrong thing. I'm trying to tell you. Now he knows this. I know what you're asking. Well, if true religion can't save the Jew, then what's the good? What good is it being a Jew? What good is it having true religion? What's the advantage Now he answers that. Let me just walk you through it very quickly and then give you a takeaway. Look with me back to that text that we read, Romans chapter 3. You see what he says? In Romans chapter 3, he says this. Um, In fact, I want you to see this. This is really important. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Now watch what he says. Much in every way. You see, what he's saying is true religion's not the problem. The problem is what you think it can do instead of using it for what God intends it to do. And he says, to begin with, you get the oracles of God. Now, some of your translations right there have first and then people will say, look, that says first, the oracles of God. Then you read the rest of the paragraph and there's not a second. Look, Paul made a mistake. Why do you say the Bible's inerrant? That's a tough t- passage to translate. ESV's got it better. It's a word that means not first in sequence, but first foundationally to begin with. Why, how do you know, how do you know the signs and seals and their purpose? How do you know the ministries? How do you know your privileges? Because God has given His people His Word. That's why the Reformation was so powerful. The Reformation got salvation back understood right because it understood sola scriptura, the supremacy, sufficiency, the inerrancy, infallibility of God's Word as our only rule of faith and practice. And because of that, now we can understand what God has given us in true religion and the value of true religion in every way when you're based upon the word of God. And what did Jesus say about the word of God? You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life, but they bear witness of me. The word of God that brings us the life, the religion, the sacred way of life with accuracy is there to bring you to Christ. That's the purpose of it. And so he then says in every way because they've given the oracles of God. Then, get, then notice what he says. He goes to another. He says, "Well, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God?" Paul, you're pointing out all these Jewish people that you say are lost because they didn't have faith in, in Christ and because they they didn't put their trust for salvation in the Lord. They put their trust for their salvation in religion. Well, was there? Did their unfaithfulness rule out God's faithfulness? He says, "No, no. In fact, pointing out their faithlessness and their condition as lost until they come to." the God of grace and mercy to save them not the religion God gave but to God who gives salvation to you and he says let me answer it this way by no means let God be true though everyone were a liar God's promises are true they're yes and amen in Christ then he does boy this is a stroke of genius he then goes immediately to a quote from Psalm 51 Psalm 51 written by anybody I take a guess can't hardly miss this one, David. And then Psalm 51, David says this that you may be justified, God, that you, God, may be justified in your works and and prevail when you are judged. In other words, he says, I as a sinner, when I'm judged, is merely highlighting the glory and majesty of God and His faithfulness, and when He shows me my faithlessness, that's not His lack of faithfulness, that's His faithfulness telling me you must be right with me. Confess Bless your sins and put your trust in. Would anybody more than David know that? Now, remember, he's talking to the Jewish people, his Jewish audience in particular. And he's saying to the Jewish audience, uh, "Their are two big guys. their three big guys would be who? Abraham, Moses and David. He said, let's take on David. Great King David. Great King David through whom the Messiah comes. Great King David, who was a great sinner. He commits adultery. Conspiracy, he murders the husband of the woman he's committing adultery with. Here's David in the midst of true religion. The blessings of God's providence. The blessings of his victories over Goliath, over the Philistine. All of these things. The blessings of God delivering him from Saul. And then instead of humility, he rises up in arrogance. And he takes a man's a faithful soldier. He takes his wife while he's on the battlefield. To get rid of his guilt, he decides, I won't confess it, I'll just get rid of the man. And he gets him in a position to be killed. What does God do? True religion. God has preachers. And preachers who know you don't get saved by your fame or by your true religion. You get saved when you confess your sins and cast yourself Upon the God of grace. His name was Nathan. And he came to David. This nondescript preacher. And he looked David in the eye. And he preached a sermon. And he ended it with an illustration. There's a rich man who has one sheep. There's a rich man who has all of these sheep. And there's a poor man that has one sheep. And the rich man killed the poor man to get his one sheep. What should we do with the rich man? David. And David said, kill him. And Nathan said, you're the man. And what did Nathan do? He preached the word. There's the blessing of true religion. The word of God. Those called to preach. Small groups, discipleship, nurturers, godly fathers, godly mothers. Those are those wonderful blessings that can't save, but when doing what they ought to do, point you to Savior. Is there any advantage of true religion and all of its blessings? Yes. They can't save, but they can point you to the Savior. They can nurture you in the Savior when you get off track. So what does David do? He writes the greatest statement of repentance that you'll find in your Bible. It's Psalm 51. Psalm 51. And he says in it, not only God, you are righteous when you judge. I, my mouth is shut. Let every mouth be shut because God alone speaks truth and every man is a liar. And he acknowledges the righteousness of God. He acknowledges the truthfulness of God. He confesses his own sin. He doesn't say, God, patch me up. Just give me a little hand up here. He says, God created me a clean heart. Forgive all of my transgressions that I have sinned against you. And God gloriously redeems him. God gloriously restores him. See the advantage of true religion used truly. The artifacts bring you to the architect. That's what they do. And then he writes a second great psalm. What does he write next? Don't say Psalm 52. He then writes Psalm 32. You can almost feel it. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Whose sin is forgiven, whose transgressions are covered. In that Lord is life evermore. There's that advantage. You see, that small group, that accountability group, that congregational community, the preaching of God's Word, as incompetent and inadequate the preacher is, yet the presence of the Spirit of God, the worship of God in spirit and in truth, the confession of sin, all of those things, they can't save. They are designed to bring you to the Savior, grow you in the Savior, and send you for the Savior. There's their advantage. There are of great advantage. And then he goes on to just finish his thought and I'll finish it and then give you the takeaway. He then finishes his thought this way. But oh, this hey, this is something else you got to see. Look, but if now watch, Paul just got personal. Look at the plural personal pronoun. But if our, you see, our, mine, if our, not just you, he's saying me, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through, now watch, he went from a plural personal, now he goes to a personal personal but if through my life. See, folks, that's why I'm telling you, I think he's been through this. He knows to give it to his countrymen because it came to him through Stephen. Stephen showed him his hope was in the wrong place. His hope was in true religion instead of the God who gives the true religion designed to bring you confessing your sins back to him and to be nurtured by him. He knows this. He knows it personally. He has stepped into the crime season said the crime and he said I'm the criminal I see what you're going to say because I said it I said it and then God showed me my hope was in the wrong place my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus blood and righteousness and so, by no means, then how can God uh, uh, judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why, and why um, not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just. Well... He said, I know what people out there are saying. Paul says we're saved by grace in Christ and it's not our obedience that saves us. What Paul is really saying is just go sin if you want to because God's grace is greater than sin. If there's a bucket of sin, God gives two buckets of grace. I got an idea. Let me, let me go send two buckets full and get four buckets of grace. He said that. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? The answer to get your obedience intentional is not to make you think your obedience saves you. But for you to know your obedience. Is being given to your sufficient savior. Who alone saves you. So here's the takeaway. Now close in prayer. True religion. True religion is a gift from God. For his people. And therefore an advantage. In every way. That it's intended to be an advantage. Unless. It is used the wrong way. Then it becomes a tragic disadvantage. If your hope is in your religion, who baptized you, your baptism, the fact that you go to church, the fact that you tithe. Listen, those artifacts of true religion are crucial To bring you to Christ. To grow you in Christ. But they can't be Christ. Only Christ can save you. True religion brings us to Christ as Lord and Savior. It matures us in Christ. It mobilizes us for Christ. But true religion cannot do what Christ alone can do. And that is save you from your sins. When I went, when y'all sent me in 1983 to fund me as a church planter in Charlotte with our 38 people in the core group that became Christ's covenant. I remember, uh, I remember um, getting there and a man said, oh, you're going to plant a church? I said, yeah. Who said, who's your target? I said, what? He said, are you going after church or unchurched? And I said, what? Church or unchurched? I said, I'm going after sinners. And in Charlotte, a lot of them are churched. They're just not saved. You know, it is possible to even... And I'm not talking about just false churches. It's possible to get into a true church that's being faithful to Christ and you get inoculated in the churchianity just enough to keep you from Christianity. Christ. Can I say something as plain as I know to say it? If you belong to Christ by faith and repentance, then you are saved from your sins. If you do not belong to Christ by faith and repentance, whether you're inside or outside of a Bible-believing church, you're lost. And you need to come to Jesus. And that's what the church is there to ask you, call you, cajole you, pray for you, plead with you. To do is to come to Christ. Brothers and sisters, thank God for our glorious true religion manifested in New Testament faithful churches, God glorifying churches, Christ exalting churches, Bible preaching churches, discipleship teaching churches, praying consistently churches. I praise God for them. They are an advantage. Be in them. Be members one of another. But don't make them a disadvantage by thinking they can save you. They cannot. It is only Christ. I was raised, you've heard my testimony. I got saved out of a drug problem. I was churched. I was drugged to church every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night. My grandfather was on the Billy Graham team. My daddy and mama went forward with me in their arms at the first Billy Graham evangelistic meeting in Charlotte. I got the names, i got the time, I've got the events, I got it all around me. I just didn't have Jesus. And at age 20, God broke in. Now I don't know whether you're 16, 14, 20, or 70, 80, I don't know. But I'm praying If you think being in the orbit of true religion is going to save you, I'm praying you'll break in before the day of judgment when there is no opportunity for salvation. I don't want you to get there thinking that's your defense. Your defense is that you know Christ, and by Christ's blood you are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's why we have true religion. That's why we are engaged in true religion. To come to Christ, grow in Christ, and then go for Christ. Not to think true religion can save us, but Christ alone. Pray with me. Father, thank you for the moments we could be together. May I just say something as I close this prayer. If today you've not yet come to Christ, there would be people up here to my left and right. And you want to pray with them. And God's broken through. God's broken through. And you know, whether it was inadvertently or purposefully, self-deception has made you think I'm saved because I'm in a church. We're saved because the church points us to Christ in Christ. And may I call you to that Savior. There are those here who will pray. That's what Briarwood's, Briarwood's not here. I mean, praise the Lord for, to be members in a true church that's seeking, not imperfect, but true. That's trying to grow and want you to grow. But the first thing we're here to do is point you not to us, but to him. Come to Christ this day. There'll be those to pray with you. And then, God, help your people grow. Help us to be faithful in the pursuit of true religion, which, number one, never offers itself in place of Christ, but gives ourselves to bring men and women to Christ, to grow them in Christ, and to send them out for Christ. And thank you for the blessed advantages to be with your people. In
0: Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reader. Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.